Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay, and welcome back to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. We're passing the halfway mark in our four-part special series on His Holiness the Dalai Lama's Four Principal Commitments. So far, we've explored his commitments to the promotion of human values and the promotion of religious harmony. Today, we'll be taking a look at his third principal commitment, a commitment to the preservation of Tibet's culture. The Dalai Lama is easily one of the most recognizable faces on the entire planet. He's a Nobel Peace Prize winner and a spiritual leader to countless people across the globe. But His Holiness is also a Tibetan, and as a Tibetan, he is the focus of the Tibetan people's hopes and aspirations, both inside Tibet and in exile. His Holiness is committed to working to preserve the Tibetan language and culture, as well as speaking up for Tibet's beleaguered environment. The Dalai Lama has put forward the middle way approach to peacefully resolve the Tibet-China conflict. He often refers to himself as a spokesperson for the Tibetan people, and he believes that Tibet's culture, which currently faces mortal danger from the Chinese government's illegal and brutal occupation of Tibet, has something important to offer, not just to Tibetans, but to the entire world. Let's hear the words of His Holiness himself. The culture, Buddhist culture, I feel as a result of seeing many trouble in this planet due to small incident, bloodshed, the suffering of innocent people in many areas. It happened. Look in Africa and Middle East. So, when we are seeing, when we are seeing these things, then it begins to realize Tibetan Buddhist culture really create peaceful society. Of course, that does not mean some Tibetans are very cruel, <laughs> merciless, <laughs> fighting, killing. <laughs> But all, I think, situation, I think Tibetan community, I think comparatively much, much compassionate. So that culture heritage is really worthwhile to preserve. Now that we've heard from His Holiness, let's dive deeper into his third principal commitment with our special guest for today's Tibet Talk, Mr. Tenzin Namgyal Tethong. Tenzin Law has a vital history of service to the Dalai Lama. He was His Holiness's representative to North America from 1973 to 1986, as well as a special representative here in Washington, D.C. from 1987 to 1990. I should also point out that Tenzin Law is the founding president of ICT. And recently, he visited ICT's offices to speak 
with ICT's current president, Tencho Getzo. Let's listen to that conversation now. Thank you so much for stopping by ICT today for this recording of our Tibet Talks program. We wanted to highlight on His Holiness's four principal commitments. And uh, today um, we wanted to speak about um, His Holiness always says, as the Dalai Lama, I have a special connection and a uh, commitment uh, to the people of Tibet. And um, I thought maybe I could begin by asking you to um, share with us what is the background to this? Why is this uh, relationship special? The institution of the Dalai Lama uh, has had a special relationship with the people of Tibet for almost 500 years. So in this recent history of 500 years, the Dalai Lamas have been a very important religious as well as political mm -hmm. uh, figure in Tibetan life. So just this uh, passage of time and his principal role as mm -hmm. the highest Lama of the land, as well as the head of state of Tibet, uh, has created the special bond between mm -hmm. the people of Tibet and the Dalai Lama. Can you explain a little bit further? You said 500 years, so how? Sure. Initially, I think uh, we probably can start with the first Dalai Lama. He was uh, a renowned disciple of Jetsongapa, a great Tibetan spiritual master and a historical figure who in the 14th, around the 14th century, uh, managed to, shall we say, almost distill the previous many centuries of Tibetan Buddhist scholarship Mm -hmm. and Buddhist learning, he, some would use the word reformed mm -hmm. uh, Tibetan Buddhism, but he attracted a tremendous amount of following and gave a new lease on uh, Buddhist learning in mm -hmm. Tibet. So among his disciples, one of the uh, well, better known, shall we say, or maybe the former uh, student, Gindutrup, uh, went mm -hmm. from Lhasa to Thang mm -hmm. in central Tibet and built Tashilimbo Monastery. Mm -hmm. And so it is at Tashilimbo Monastery where the first Dalai Lama was retro retroactively recognized. This relationship uh, brings together not only a well-known Lama to the forefront, but as I just said earlier, he is uh, both symbolic as well as in reality, a continuation of this great synthesis of sort of Tibetan Buddhist learning mm -hmm. at that time. So there's much more value than just symbolism. But you uh, explained he was retroactively known as the first Dalai Lama. So when did the Dalai Lama name? The third reincarnation was when the title Dalai Lama was given mm -hmm. by the Mongol rulers. Mm -hmm. At that time, the Mongols had, uh, well, prior to that, practically ruled the known world from the Sea of Japan all the mm -hmm. way to Europe, and uh, descendants of Genghis Khan, some of the Khans who were very powerful operating in northeastern and northern parts of Tibet, came to recognize the third Dalai Lama as an outstanding religious scholar and spiritual leader, and conferred on him the title Dalai Lama. Dalai is a Mongolian word, 
uh, connoting the ocean, so a lama who is like the ocean. So it's from then on uh, the Dalai Lama institution came into official being and the Tibetans also embraced that and to the Dalai Lama they gave it all the recognition and uh, support which helped bring about Tibet in a united form once again. Mm -hmm. So it had a, uh, a great political impact on Tibetan society. Mm -hmm. And you said uh, the Tibetans also recognized the Dalai Lama in that sense. How do the Tibetans see the Dalai Lama and um, what does he mean for Tibetans? In a sense, uh, after Tibetans embraced Buddhism, after the introduction of Buddhism from India and the efforts of early kings of Tibet and other Buddhist scholars and translators, uh, Tibetans began to, I suppose you could say in a sense, began to focus a lot on the idea of the compassionate Buddha, the Buddha of compassion, uh, generosity. Mm -hmm. And with that concept in mind, Tibetans began to look at Tibet as an abode of this Buddha of compassion, or uh, looked at their homeland as a special uh, area that had the blessings of all the compassion in the universe. And with that mindset, then the Dalai Lama is seen as somebody uh, representing or embodying the Buddha of compassion, mm -hmm. and that the, the land has the special connection to the idea of compassion. So that's where it starts with the religious background, mm -hmm. then it has this political and historical connection, and then it has this additional layer of uh, spiritual spirituality or mythology of Tibet um, brought in together. And as we say in Tibetans, we say, Yes. So in this life and beyond. That's right. That's right. So he is our protector and our symbol in this life, and he is also our guide and uh, protector in the next life. Mm -hmm. So has this special connection, and he has this special um, commitment uh, to Tibetans. And uh, what are some ways that you could elaborate that his holiness has been fulfilling uh, this commitment? I think uh, Tibetans recognize the fact that when uh, China took over Tibet, mm -hmm and uh, His Holiness also had to leave Tibet, mm -hmm. followed by hundreds of thousands of Tibetans. It became obvious that Tibet, uh, especially Tibet of the past or traditional Tibet, no longer was going to exist. Mm -hmm. And so by the early 60s, when His Holiness was in exile, there was every possibility that Tibet as a future entity, whether it's political or cultural or religious, would probably fade away in the next decade or two. Mm -hmm. So under such circumstances, His Holiness managed in his early years in exile to begin work that would not only uh, preserve key elements of Tibetan Buddhist learning, mm -hmm. but other aspects of Tibetan culture that uh, would uh, keep Tibetan identity very much alive. And to give some context, when you say early years of exile, his holiness yes. was in his early 20s. That's right. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you say that his holiness was early 20s, it makes it actually all the more re remarkable mm -hmm. now, as a young man in his 20s, 
uh, with the world basically uh, turning its back on Tibet and Tibetan issue, mm -hmm. and His Holiness allowed to live in a very sort of remote part of India. Mm -hmm. uh, many, shall we say, political experts as well as friends of Tibet thought this is really the sad but unfortunate end of Tibet. Our recent history shows that His Holiness was uh, not somebody who immediately gave up on mm -hmm. the reality, but instead started to work on efforts at preserving Tibetan culture. So everything from he immediately worked to establish school for refugee mm -hmm. children. Uh, in the first year of exile in Dharamsala, mm -hmm. he thought of uh, uh, for the future of Tibet, mm -hmm. a constitution whereby it would be democratic and all-inclusive, and it would even have the power to remove the institution of the Dalai Lama. So he was, had great foresight and uh, he implemented many of these efforts such as education for children and trying to re-establish the monastic institutions with a great deal of difficulty, almost no resources at hand, but initiating it and then gradually being able to build it up with support from all over the world, but initially with the people and government of India. Then, uh, as you say, His Holiness was so young then, and he actually had uh, grown up pretty much mostly in Tibet. How, do, what do you think gave for him to have so much far-sighted vision at such a um, young age and to look at it? Because I, I think those who were in his entourage also, who were along with him, more many of them didn't have. That's were right. all looking at maybe we return to Tibet in That's a right. year or two and not looking at this uh, from that perspective. That's true. You know, His Holiness grew up in a, a, a the very traditional Tibetan setting. Mm -hmm. uh, you might even say very conservative kind of uh, environment where he was strictly taught to study Buddhism. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was uh, to be the head of the, the Tibetan government but in a fairly symbolic way where senior uh, government officials and the whole institution of a government uh, basically remained powerful as well as conservative. Mm -hmm. Yet, despite all that, His Holiness had an inner, shall we say, uh, strength or ability to go beyond this. He did not necessarily confront uh, the senior officials mm -hmm. or the more conservative environment, mm -hmm. but he took steps, plodded along mm -hmm. very steadfastly on uh, changes that he thought would be good for the Tibetan people. Mm -hmm. So I think that in itself uh, is quite remarkable. And I was um, listening to some um, uh, Tibetan talks on and I heard um, at that point of time, when we had first come into exile, I think um, the leadership of the Tibetans all got together and looked to His Holiness as a source of something that would pull us out of how bad the times were at that because it was that exile, very difficult early situation. And His Holiness took that opportunity uh, to unify Tibetans as a people, I think. Could you speak about that? That's true. His Holiness came into exile as a penniless refugee, Tibetan people and and the small number of government officials and important figures in Tibetan political life came into exile. 
they pledged their full allegiance to His Holiness, but His Holiness immediately took steps to transform the leadership. Mm -hmm. By that I mean he did not rely just on the old cadre of mm -hmm. Tibetan government officials, but immediately brought in individuals who were uh, not part of the old establishment, mm -hmm. but who had special skills or talents in business or in community work and took those steps. That made a, a big difference. And of course, while he came out of Tibet, among people who really uh, helped the young Dalai Lama in a, mm -hmm. in a sense is many of the senior officials, especially when he escaped, as many of you know, Kungal uh, Pala, Mr. Mm -hmm. Pala, was a key figure. And, uh, and two other people who had a tremendous amount of uh, impact on the young Dalai Lama were, were his two senior tutors. His tutors, Lingramichi, the senior tutor, who primarily focused, I think, on religious affairs and religious learning. And the junior tutor, Chijanamichi, while uh, a full-fledged, you know, important spiritual teacher, also had a larger social and, shall we say, political connection to many parts of Tibet. And I think both of them counseled and advised his holiness in very important ways, you know, of course, with great uh, integrity as well as confidentiality, yet uh, advised his holiness on many matters, made the transition for his holiness uh, more successful. And you are also amongst those young Tibetans who were had uh, going to um, study in British schools in India at that right. time, who were among the few who could speak English. You left your studies and um, came over to dedicate your service to His Holiness. You were among those. Yes. And can you tell us what was the feeling then of amongst the youth and the um, Tibetans then? Well, I think some of us, my generation, mm -hmm. who had a few years of uh, schooling in these mm -hmm. English or missionary schools mm -hmm. in India, were uh, of an age where we clearly understood the great tragedy in Tibet mm -hmm. and how His Holiness and a small group of Tibetans were in India with no resources, no help. And so there was a natural sort of instinctive feeling that, well, we should be there to do whatever we can. And uh, in the early years when I first went to Dharamsala, we were sort of identified as English secretaries because we knew a little English and we were able to use the typewriter. So at uh, that time, <laughs> Dharamsala had no cars, it was just a couple. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Dharamsala is a you know, small, what's called a hill station in India, a small hamlet, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, 6,000 feet above sea level, or which once in the British India time, maybe mm -hmm. 30 or 40 years ago, had a possibility of turning into a proper summer resort, but it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. it ha it's a small hill station with many bungalows and summer cottages abandoned when the mm -hmm. British uh, left India and India became independent. They, it had just one bus coming from the plains of Punjab to Upper Dharamsala once a day. And uh, as you said, when His Holiness was there, there were, I think, basically two cars to start mm -hmm. with, one for His Holiness and one for the Tibetan secretary. Mm -hmm. No restaurants, no, no shops, uh, 
nothing in upper dharamsala. Everything had to be in lower dharamsala. So it was a very isolated place. But it was there that all the Tibetan refugees would come over and arrive. And I think His Holiness met each and every one of them and the schools were started. That's true. So when His Holiness first came to Dharamsala, it was this abandoned little place with a few cottages. And uh, no Tibetans were also settled there. The Indian government preferred to send them to road camps as temporary uh, settlement and then later programs to settle them in agriculture settlements in the south. But a handful of Tibetans from the very early 60s came to Dharamsala and they just built up little shacks by mm -hmm. the road mm -hmm. and settled. In fact, the core settlement of Tibetans in Dharamsala, which still remains, mm -hmm. is in a small enclave in the middle of tall pine trees. And I believe the area is part of the forest department which did not allow them to cut down any trees, but they let them have their uh, shacks in the place. And even if you visit Dharamsala today, that part, there are homes in the middle of trees and trees in the middle of houses too. Well, can I ask you, maybe if we uh, talk about one area, culture preservation. Today we see it, everything uh, um, flourishing in exile. But it was not an easy journey to get to where we are. Could you speak about His Holiness's right. efforts in that area? Well, uh, in terms of cultural preservation, I think the most important area where His Holiness put a lot of effort in is to re-establishing the monastic mm -hmm. communities. So one of the f first major Tibetan sort of conferences ever in Dharamsala mm -hmm. was in 1961 when uh, all the heads of the different Buddhist schools came together, mm -hmm. met with His Holiness, mm -hmm. and there's a very famous photo of that. And their main uh, agenda and uh, final decision was that each of the different sects would re-establish their main or principal mm -hmm. monastic institutions, and that the cultural preservation and the Buddhist learning would ha uh, have uh, great emphasis in all the effort. And so with following that, the different monastic institutions re-established in different parts. I think the Sakyas in the Rajpur, uh, Nyingmas in South India, uh, many of the Giluk monasteries in South India in different settlements. During that period, some of the most learned Tibetan monks, lamas, geshes were actually uh, in a place called Baksa, in West Bengal, which used to be, uh, I, I believe, a prison during British time. So mm -hmm. it was not a nice area mm -hmm. with uh, the surroundings not quite suitable for proper resettlement of people from the highlands. But nevertheless, it reconstituted initially in Baksa mm -hmm. and then were sent out to the settlements. Uh, and in Dharamsala itself, one of the first, among the first cultural groups that re-established themselves was the, the uh, troupe of Tibetan musicians and dancers mm -hmm. who had initially reassembled in Kalimpong mm -hmm. and then they re moved to Dharamsala. Uh, the Tibetan Institute of, of Performing Tibetan Arts. Institute of Performing Arts. And then one or two Tibetan doctors led mm -hmm. by Dr. Yijit and then mm -hmm. operating out of a little shack in Dharamsala 
started the work to re-establish the Tibetan medical mm-hmm. center there. Mm-hmm. And then another aspect in Dharamsala itself is the library of Tibetan works of archives, which was also very closely uh, chaperoned by his illness, mm-hmm. in a sense. And all these institutions have uh, been able to sustain themselves and, and in fact, flourish very well. Uh, the Tibetan Medical Center is a much larger institution now, and Tibetan medicine practitioners and doctors are uh, successfully, you know, practicing all over India in the Himalayas mm-hmm. and also interacting with other medical traditions in the West as well. So the Tibetan system of healing and herbal medicines mm-hmm. are proving to be very helpful and productive in many areas. Uh, in some parts of India, uh, they are very, very popular. Mm-hmm. And the monastic institutions have done even better, I think you could say. Not only have they been able to preserve uh, the traditional learning practices, they have managed to produce several generations of first-rate Tibetan Buddhist scholars mm-hmm. of Geshe rank. They have even uh, branched out into offering the same level of education to nuns, which is something new, which mm-hmm. did not happen uh, uh, enough in Tibet. Uh, and these monastic institutions have also um, branched out into the wider world, mm-hmm. all over South Asia, as well as East Asia, and in the West. And uh, these uh, Buddhist institutions and practitioners are not just offering Tibetan Buddhist learning, in mm-hmm. a sense, but uh, they, they too are incorporating what they learn from the outside world. And especially no- noticeable is the exercise Tibetans have been involved in trying to find uh, compatibility or resonance with modern science. Yes. Mm-hmm. So on that aspect, as you know, uh, His Holiness has personally played a very s- strong role because he took on himself to meet with famous scientists and physicists and uh, psychologists and uh, in his effort <clears throat> not only to learn from them but to uh, find validation for Buddhist practices, mm-hmm. everything, everything from meditation and physical attributes of changing your body mm-hmm. to uh, metaphysical understandings of the universe and life. and so. Uh, it's become a very healthy and interesting exercise uh, which many other people are looking into and uh, overall it has given the Tibetan people also a new respect as well as validation for Mm -hmm. our cultural traditions because Tibetans are now uh, either in exile now all over India and the Western Mm -hmm. world and Tibetans in in Tibet under Chinese rule and we need to find out whether our traditions and culture uh, have any meaning in this modern world and with this interaction with science and resonance efforts we are able to uh, function in the real world whether it's in the West or India yet at the same time find meaning in our traditions more than just purely out of sentimentality Yes, no, absolutely. And His Holiness always tells us that um, Tibet has something to contribute to the world. 
and that it's not just safeguarding a culture and a religion, but it's something that can contribute to a making the world um, better as mm, a yes. whole. And looking at it from that perspective, I remember um, hearing some stories where in the initial uh, years of His Holiness's travel, there were some elders who were saying, oh, His Holiness is not talking about our political issue, but he's uh, talking about love and compassion and other things. But I think all of this is relevant because living here in D.C. in a political space, everything has to be made relevant. Um, That's right. I think, would you agree to... That's true. I think in the early years, um, especially when his holiness started to travel out and speak more in India initially and mm -hmm. then more in the West, uh, some Tibetans thought his holiness is speaking too much about compassion. What about the suffering in Tibet? Whereas others would say His Holiness is too much of a political figure and that time has passed, uh, not seeing the whole picture in a sense. And uh, we are now able to look back and see that his uh, explanations about uh, Buddhist learning and how spirituality, political or real life can be brought together in a positive way, I think uh, it speaks for itself now. Mm -hmm. And that His Holiness is from traveling from Tibet to India. I remember um, reading in his um, autobiography that when he reached the border, he had to say goodbye to the Tibetan entourage who was returning to Tibet and he knew they were leaving back and he would probably never see them again. And he faced India and he looked and he said, now I'm entering a space where I don't know anyone. And from that point till now, where he's recognized all over the world, I mean, an incredible That's uh, right. journey. Mm. It's true, right? These days, uh, for a lot of younger Tibetans especially, mm. uh, they think uh, His Holiness has always been famous mm. in the world, and everybody knows about him, about Tibet, mm. and uh, that the exile administration and the Tibetan cultural and religious institutions have always been mm. so well kept law, you know, running. Mm -hmm. They are not aware that in the 60s and 70s, up to the 80s, I think, a tremendous amount of work went into establishing these mm -hmm. institutions. And His Holiness, of course, can't <laughs> personally supervise each project. But a whole generation of people took his advice to heart and uh, they made their own contributions, sacrifices to make many of these institutions really successful, mm. uh, which clearly, you know, uh, uh, shows cultural preservation or development in any society can't be done just by, shall we say, experts and funding. Mm. <laughs> experts and funding may be important, but the primary mm, contributors are, as they say, the stakeholders, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to get them real really not only involved, but fully committed in some sense. And that's always very difficult, but for some reason, whether for historical reasons or, or by sheer example of his holiness, uh, he managed to get a very high percentage, you know, mm -hmm. difficult to put percentages, right? 90 to 95 or 99% mm -hmm. of Tibetans actually trying to do something mm -hmm. in each in his own mm -hmm. little way. That that that's that's mm -hmm. the 
I think the real story behind all of this. No, I, I speak uh, when I talk to people who uh, on about Tibet, and I say we are 120,000 or so in exile. People get amazed because they think, and in North America we have uh, maybe 15,000 uh, or so Tibetans, which is now, mm -hmm. and the population has grown, but it's only uh, a very small number of Tibetans who are outside with this whole area as well. The majority of 6 million Tibetans are back in Tibet. Tensla, can I ask you, since two, in, after coming into exile, too, you mentioned His Holiness built a democratic structure. Um, we started doing elections in exile and uh, slowly handing over, His Holiness handed over his political authority gradually and then fully in 2011 to elected leadership. Um, what does this mean? Well, I think uh, this is a sort of a big political message or advice to the Tibetan people for now as well as for the future. Uh, as I said, from a young age, His Holiness began to see how uh, democratic societies were answers to the future. Uh, and so he not only did this constitution for Tibet, he also forced the exile administration to immediately have a parliament and they would say how do we do this so just go get the different sections of Tibetans, elect them and bring them and create an assembly and in the early stages the elected representatives didn't quite know how what their role was and uh, since they were told that you have to oversee the administration the small number of uh, elected uh, members actually put a desk in each of the main offices to see, okay, we are literally going to oversee, you know. So right from those stages, we did, uh, started to learn this process. And for the future, and, and then I think uh, His Holiness also personally felt that while the institution of the Dalai Lama, uh, a Lama as head of state, served Tibet very well overall, you know, there have been periods of um, political instability or conflict, but overall, the institution of the Dalai Lamas have served Tibet very well, yeah. brought about stability and rule of law, as well as a sense of unified Tibet. Uh, but he obviously felt that the future is should not depend on a spiritual figure for mundane political events. And so he's, he thought even in uh, his, uh, so, to, so, so to speak, his retirement in exile, mm -hmm. he thought it's time to start the practice of uh, political uh, governance to be handed over to uh, secular forces, mm -hmm. not necessarily a lama, so to speak. And that is an advice for the future. Uh, and so he's done that uh, and uh, we are functioning in exile in that manner, and hopefully that will be a model for the future in Tibet. Uh, yet, despite having done all of this, there's every indication that the Tibetan people in Tibet and in exile still look to his fullness as a, a very important national symbol. Mm -hmm. So you could say he's a great symbolic figure, 
or he's a unifying figure, uh, whatever, uh, they look to him in that manner. So I think there is debate among the Tibetans, should the future Dalai Lama still be asked to be a symbolic head of Tibet or not, because we need somebody like him. So this political process, his holiness devolution of his role in a government uh, has uh, taken place and it's still, I think, evolving in a sense. Something that has been there for generations cannot uh, be changed uh, that quickly. And Although on this, you know, uh, we should mention that uh, when the devolution, so to speak, of mm -hmm. his holiness, no longer in government, took place in exile mm -hmm. and uh, at a conference of exile leaders, uh, there are many who feel that it didn't quite go the right way because mm -hmm. when the Dalai Lama became the head of state, king of Tibet, you know, 400 mm -hmm. years ago. It happened because both political, religious and social institutions and forces in Tibet all coalesced to say, yes, it's time to have a head of state. The Dalai Lama should be, quotes, the king of Tibet. Uh, so in exile, just a few people had a meeting and agreed on this devolution, so to speak. We should have had a larger debate and we should have found ways to bring voices from Tibet into it or wait until people in Tibet have an opportunity to have a voice in this deliberation. But the primary voice is His Holiness and he was determined, I think, right from the beginning That's true. to push towards yes. Tibetans learning to stand on our own. That's true. Uh, feet. We have many challenges ahead of us still. Anything else, Denzela, that um, we might uh, add before we wrap up? I think um, without his holiness, the Tibetan experience would have been would have disappeared. And uh, yes, very likely, mm -hmm. uh, because without his holiness, uh, personal efforts uh, at re-establishing institutions and giving the Tibetans in exile a new purpose in what they're doing and without his uh, sort of global presence mm -hmm. which uh, sort of known historically oh this mm -hmm. is the high lama of tibet but which he at a very personal level uh, made it real mm -hmm. with his interactions with uh, individual scholars and uh, others as well as his public speaking and engagement mm -hmm. in many different forums no, I think ICT is also, I mean, I working here, we are a membership organization and we see daily how many people have been touched uh, by His Holiness, by His Holiness's message and through His Holiness, Tibet and the Tibetan course. And then that's why organization, we are able to right. exist also. And I think, um, as you were saying, how His Holiness has been able to inspire so many others to do the work and for Tibet along with that. So I think that... Yeah, and I was uh, for, I forgot, almost forgot my train of thought. Mm -hmm. What I was trying to say was, and in Tibet, from since he left Tibet, mm -hmm. the Chinese had a very... Uh, first of all, they were adamant that Tibet was becoming Chinese or communist. And so everything old was going to be 
forgotten or put away. Mm. And they started that process and then it got worse during the Cultural Revolution. And uh, uh, many aspects of Tibetan learning and cultural practices would have practically vanished for 20, 30 years. Mm. But because His Holiness was in, in exile and it got considerable attention from the rest of the world, the Chinese had to scale back their practices and allow certain parts of Tibetan uh, culture or practices continue, if not, you know, just on a superficial level. Uh, and um, now more so they have to pay attention because Tibet scholars and experts are more abundant in the outside world than, than in Tibet mm -hmm. and or among Chinese scholars. There are more Americans and French and Japanese scholars who know about Tibet and Tibetan culture than a whole bunch of Chinese scholars. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of that has uh, been his holiness contribution towards saving Tibet literally. Thank you very much, Bonsla, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching and listening to this episode of Tibet Talks. We'll be back next week to wrap up our four-part special series on His Holiness's four principal commitments with a look at his final commitment, a commitment to the revival of India's civilizational heritage. You don't want to miss that last episode, so make sure to check it out. But until then, as we always say on Tibet Talks, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Tujiche. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org slash pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.